Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Tanya Golash-Boza, author of Before Gentrification, The Creation of D.C.'s Racial Wealth Gap. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Deidre? Great. I wonder if you could start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Absolutely. Um, So I am a sociology professor at the University of California, Merced, and I'm currently um, working as the executive director of the University of California, Washington Center. So I I work for the University of California, but I live in D.C. And I've been um, coming back to D.C. for the past few years for research for this book, but I'm also originally from Washington, D.C. So I um, have written a few other books, but this book is a lot, it's very personal to me because it really um, reflects on the time period that I've grown up in, all the things that happened in the 80s and 90s, and also how that affects the city that I've also recently returned to. Now, you start the book off talking about Mark's grandparents' house. Can you tell us about Mark and his family and housing? What is the connection? Absolutely. So um, when I was in high school, I had a a friend of mine, Tracy, and, um, you know, she and I were friends. I I went off to college at the University of Maryland. It's not too far away. And she um, enrolled in the University District of Columbia to take um, for an arts degree. And, you know, we'd hang out together on the weekends. And um, she had a big brother named Mark. And I always admired Mark because he was, you know, her older brother. He was super cool, super smart. just someone I kind of looked up to from the neighborhood and everyone in the neighborhood looked up to him. When um, I was in college and Tracy was also in college, her brother was arrested and, um, and he was convicted of drug distribution and he was sentenced to life in prison. So, um, so I, I've often thought about all of the things that I've been able to do with my life. I've often thought about how, his arrest and incarceration um, derailed Tracy's life. And the other piece of the story that is um, even like more salient for the, for the, in terms of the book is that when Mark was arrested, he was, he was no, you know, he was about 23 years old and he was no longer living in his, in his mother's house, but um, the police came to the house and they actually arrested um, his sister and his mother. And the, the police, um, made the case that they wanted to forfeit 
um, the house. They wanted to they wanted to take the house because they argued that he had been um, selling drugs out of that house, even though you know he really hadn't lived in the house for years. And nevertheless, um, it is actually not that difficult to seize um, an asset. So um, the police were able to seize the home and um, Tracy's mother works for the federal government. So she was able to buy the home back from the federal government, but she didn't have a mortgage on the house, you know, before. So now she had a mortgage and that, and, um, and the loan she got, you know, wasn't great. And she ended up um, missing some payments and, and then the home um, was foreclosed on. So the thing about that home um, is that, Tracy's grandfather had purchased that home in 1959 and then he had passed it along to Tracy's mother and then Tracy and Mark had grown up in the home and then um, their nieces and nephews had grown up in the home. So this was this intergenerational home that was just taken uh, from the family as part of this asset forfeiture program that um, became legalized during the war on drugs. One statistic that you talked about in the book was the fact of half of all black male youth in D.C. in 1997 were on probation, prison, jail, or on bail awaiting trial. Could you tell us, what did you find out about that, uh, the jail and, and that situation? How did that connect with this whole process of gentrification? Well, when you think about that number 50%, right, um, it then becomes clear that this phenomenon of mass incarceration and the war on drugs, it was not only affecting um, low-income people living in, in areas that were completely devastated, right? Because, of course, if it's affecting 50% of young Black men, that means that it's affecting Black men across the spectrum. So one thing when we think about um, the, the significant consequences of the war on drugs, a lot of people talk about how... Um, you know, mass incarceration has prevented upward mobility. It has prevented a whole generation of African-Americans from succeeding. But what, what a lot of scholars haven't really thought about is how mass incarceration has actually been, has actually played a role in intergenerational downward mobility. So when we think, again, we think back to Mark's case. So Mark's grandfather purchased a home in 1959. You know, that's before, you know, the civil rights movement had really taken off. It's in this context of um, significant racial conflict, significant um, racial oppression, you know, of the of the 1950s. Despite all of the obstacles that his grandfather faced in life, he was able to purchase a home. So that, that really should have set their family up for, um, for success. Because when we think about um, that generation of people that bought homes in the 1940s and 1950s, um, we often talk about that home purchase being the basis for intergenerational wealth transmission. So in, in the case of Mark's family, and actually many of the families I talked to, one thing that surprised me during the research is that of the um, 37 uh, young uh, Black men that I spoke to who had been incarcerated, 35 of their families were homeowners, like either their grandparents or their parents had owned homes. So homeownership is one of the ways that we measure middle-class status. So, in, and as you can see in Mark's case, the the, um, the grandparents were able to purchase a home. They passed that home along to um, their parents, and you know, and she was her his mother was able to secure a solid job with the federal government. But his but her children um, have not been able to achieve the level of financial stability that um, that she did. And we see that over and over again, where 
many of the men that I interviewed were from families in um, working to middle class um, black neighborhoods, their families owned homes, but they um, ended up being caught in this tremendous carceral web. And that in turn has meant that they have not been able to achieve um, the economic success that their parents and even their grandparents had achieved. Now, in chapter one, you did a historical view. Um, was the plan to keep most of the black neighborhoods white? So the in the um, so we go back to the 1930s in Washington D.C. and in Washington D.C. 1930s, the city was still relatively small; didn't have a, a ton of people in the city, and there were um, some areas of the city close to the downtown area that were nearly all black and that were really um, somewhat decrepit, you know, very, very crowded conditions, um, people living in, in substandard housing. Um, you also, so that's one kind of neighborhood that was, and that, that area was subject to clearance, sub, subject to slum clearance. Then you had these other neighborhoods that were um, working, working class neighborhoods that were more actually, that were actually integrated. So the area around Navy Yard, for example, you had um, black and white residents living side by side. They were off, many of them lived in homes that they had built. Um, uh, they worked in the Navy Yard and then they built these small wooden homes for themselves. So these were integrated neighborhoods that were not, um, so they were not as overcrowded or as you know substandard housing conditions as these other slums. But those neighborhoods were also declared to be slums and were completely cleared. And and, and so in some cases, when the neighborhoods were completely cleared, um, sometimes they built uh, government buildings. Sometimes they would just build public housing on top of it. Sometimes they would build other neighborhoods. But there was this consistent pattern of the city and the federal government coming in and just clearing out places where Black people lived. And, and some of those places were were really slums and some of those places were really not. They were, But they were integrated neighborhoods and the, and, and the government came in and just cleared those places out. Um, yeah. Was there always a housing shortage for Blacks in D.C.? I wouldn't say there always was, but in that time period in the 1930s, there was a there was a housing shortage because Black people were, were restricted from entering certain neighborhoods. So one of the reasons for the overcrowding in the central areas of the city is that Black people were not allowed to purchase homes um, in these newer developments that were emerging just outside the central city. So there's a street in D.C. today, it's called Florida Avenue, but it used to be called Boundary Street because it really was kind of the boundary of the central city. Um, and if you were to go to the city today, you wouldn't really notice that you were leaving that central city area moving up. But back then, there was a significant difference. That area was pretty much uh, rural and you know new suburban areas. So in the, say, beginning in the 1920s and then into the 1930s and 40s, uh, developers began building these new um these new housing developments outside of the central city. And the new housing developments would have um, brick homes, single family homes. They'd have some apartments, um, you know, they build parks and tree-lined streets. And, but all of those neighborhoods that were newly built were specifically designated as only for white people. So um, in the neighborhood of Bloomingdale, for example, when it was built, most of the homes in that neighborhood had covenants in the deeds. So the, you know, when they were first built by the developers, first sold, and the covenants in the deeds would say, these homes um, may not be sold to a Negro or colored person. 
Um, so, so those homes were, those neighborhoods became completely, completely white. Um, so the fact that those new neighborhoods that were being built as the city was growing, were the black people were not allowed to move into them, meant that we had an exacerbation of crowded housing in the central areas of the city. Now, you did study Berry Farm. How did mm-hmm. it go from a black, you know, neighborhood landowners to public housing? Yeah, so Berry Farm is another example of a slightly different history. One thing that it is super interesting how there's these commonalities between the neighborhoods, but there's also, they all started in these very different places, but sometimes ended up in very similar situations. So Berry Farm is a neighborhood that um, in the aftermath of the Civil War, the Freedmen's Bureau decided to allocate um, this area, which is just south of, um, the, of the Capitol building, it's just on the other side of the river. And they decided to allocate this area um, and give plots to um, people who had formerly been enslaved that had just been freed, you know, had just been manumitted or just been freed in, in the aftermath of emancipation. So they um, allocated these lots, but then they, they really didn't just give them to them. They sold them to them at a modest price, and then they sold them the lumber to build their homes. So this became, um, Berry Farm became um, a, a neighborhood where um, Black people lived. They had their plots of land. It's next to the river. So they were able to grow their um, their own food and also food for sale. So they would um, they would plant food, they plant vegetables, and they would take those vegetables into the city and sell them. So it became this self-sustaining um, black land-owning community. But this neighborhood was also declared blighted and, um, and, and, and through the process of eminent domain, the government just decided to, um, to appropriate all of that land and build public housing in its place. So, so Berry Farm was transformed from a community of black homeowners and black landowners to public housing, um, which which is state-owned property, so no longer owned by the individual people that live there. Tell us the story about Harry Lucas and his wife. I think that's a really interesting one. Yeah, so there was another neighborhood that was also declared. I mean, one thing that I, I just didn't know growing up in D.C. is how many times the federal government just came in and, and, and found these Black land-owning communities and just eradicated them through eminent domain um, so this is that. So the case of Harry Lucas is another one. So that was in this area called Reno City. So Reno City had been founded during the era of slavery, and um, people that were able, black people, were able to achieve their freedom during that time period. Many of them bought homes or, or built homes in Reno City, and Reno City became this small enclave of black families in an area of the city that came to be known as Chevy Chase. So Reno City was this section of homes um, owned by Black people, and around it, developers began to develop these all-white neighborhoods. So the Chevy Chase Land Company um, believed that the presence of this Black neighborhood in Reno City in the midst of their all-white development might affect their property values. So they lobbied the city and the parks and the federal government to have Reno City eradicated. They really wanted to, they, they argued, no, we need a school for this neighborhood. We need a, we need a park. We need, you know, we need more amenities for this neighborhood. And so we need to eradicate Reno City so that we can build um, a school for the neighborhood. So they, you know, first tried to convince the residents of Reno City to sell and, and to move out so that they could build, you know, a school in the neighborhood. And some people moved out with these um, incentives, but 
uh, Mr. Lucas and his family, you know, they were, they, they didn't want to leave. They, they, they owned a small uh, home there. Their children went to the Reno city school in this little neighborhood and they, you know, they didn't want to leave, but at the end, they also were forced out. Um, and, and, and another reason they didn't want to leave is they weren't able to find another place in the city um, where black people could live um, that they could afford. So they spent a long time, you know, trying to fighting to make, to stay in their home. And eventually um, they were not successful and they had to move to um, a black neighborhood on the other side of the city, you know, move from a home that they own to a small rented room on the other side of the city. Now you found multiple barriers to home ownership for blacks. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. And I think when we think about black home ownership, um, there, it's an interesting story of both barriers and opportunities. So when we think about, you know, the Berry Farm community, they they were they were homeowners, the people in Reno City, they were homeowners, there's other neighborhoods, Meridian Hill. So in the early 20th century, there were there were several black home and land owning communities, and many of them were just eradicated. The government just came in with eminent domain and said, you know, we need this land for this or we need this land for that, and just eradicated. So that's one so there weren't necessarily barriers to homeownership. I mean, there were barriers to homeownership, but people that overcame them still, um, you know, lost their homes. That was the 1920s. Then we get into, um, in, in the 1920s, 1930s, homeownership was not very common in general in the United States. It wasn't really considered um, the way it is today as sort of the American dream or the basis of, of wealth generation. But beginning of the 1930s, home ownership emerged as, um, or the government began this program whereby um, they wanted to encourage Americans to become homeowners. And this was the idea that people will begin to feel like they have a stake in the country because now everyone is a property owner and this kind of citizenship attached to property ownership. This idea really began to emerge in the 1930s and 1940s and the government initiated a lot of programs to help facilitate home ownership. So the story that um, a lot of urban historians will tell you is that black people were completely excluded from this from this venture to to participate in home ownership because they were not um, granted the Federal Housing Administration loans um, that made it easier to, to purchase homes, that black, the banks were not lending African-Americans money and that the Veterans Administration was not allowing African-Americans to participate in those programs. And that's true to some extent. But what's remarkable is despite all of those barriers, um, black homeownership in the United States actually doubled um, be- between 1940 and 1970. And in Washington, D.C. in particular, in 1940, there were about 7,000 black homeowners in D.C., but by 1970, there were 50,000. So the black homeownership rate increased significantly in Washington, D.C. during a time when, when there were still challenges. So in my research, I found that um, remarkably, many of these African-Americans were able to secure loans from the VA, um, these Veteran Administration loans. They also were purchasing their homes more or less at market price, and um, and they were getting loans that were, that were reasonable. Um, they were getting loans at about 6%, which was just the market rate at that time. So I found that remarkably, Many African Americans were able to overcome the other barriers to home ownership and secure homes in the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s. But the real issue is that although they secured home ownership, home ownership did not lead 
to intergenerational wealth creation for many families. It, did, it certainly did lead to it for some, but it, it didn't lead to it across the board. So but one thing I one big question I explore in the book is, why is it the case that we had so many Black homeowners in Washington, D.C. by 1970, but the racial wealth gap is still, the situation is still that Black white people in D.C. DC still have 81 times the wealth of Black people. Why didn't Black homeownership lead to Black wealth in Washington, D.C.? Now, in Chapter 2, you talk about the, the violence, the disinvestment, no mm-hmm. jobs, people needing money, and the start of the drug trade. Tell us, what did you find? Yeah, so let's let's go back to, you know, this era, the 1950s, when you have African-Americans coming up to Washington, D.C. through the Great Migration, arriving in these crowded, overcrowded areas of the city, escaping these crowded areas of the city and, and coming uptown and buying homes in these in these new areas that were becoming available to black people because the racially restricted the racially restricted covenants had been overturned they had been declared legally unenforceable then in 1954 you have school desegregation and with school desegregation now black people can move into these neighborhoods built for white residents they can send their children to school so many black people do that. They do. They they start moving uptown. They start moving into neighborhoods like Petworth and and Blooming and Bloomingdale and Eckington. And um, as they're moving in, white people are moving out very quickly. Um, most of the white people left right when schools desegregated. So right as we see school desegregation, we see a flurry of home sales in these previously all white neighborhoods. So white people are moving out to the suburbs. Now, the all-white suburbs, although segregation has been, I mean, the, the restrictive covenants are no longer legally enforceable, but there's still a long ways to go before the Fair Housing Act, and the suburbs are still very racially restrictive at this time. So white people are able to move up to the suburbs and black people aren't, but black people are able to move up to these other neighborhoods in, in the northern part of Washington, D.C. So these African-American families move in, they send their kids to the schools, the schools in, 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 in this neighborhood, for example, Petworth, are excellent. So um, Roosevelt High School is declared, you know, it's a blue ribbon school. Graduates of Roosevelt are going to Oberlin, going to the University of Michigan, going to Princeton, going to Harvard, going to Howard, going to Hampton. So they're they're leaving Washington, D.C. and going to these excellent schools. Um, and they're and they're they seem to be well on their way to achieving um, the American dream. But what happens in Petworth is it very quickly becomes a majority black. So by 1960, it's about 60% black. And then by 1970, it's almost 90% black. And as it becomes majority black, um, the neighborhood slowly experiences disinvestment. So the school, which had once been stellar, you know, by the 1970s, it's doing pretty well still. But by the 1980s, the school is really um, the local high school is really not serving the students um, very well. There's almost no AP classes on offer. Um, n- students are not passing the AP exam, even if they take AP. Uh, very few students are leaving, are graduating from high school and going on to college. Um, the test scores are very low, and, and, and students are not passing classes. And in addition to that, um, we see a rise in violence. So in the 1980s, there's a rise in unemployment nationwide, and Washington D.C. is also affected by this. And there's also a rise in there's also a rise in urban 
youth gun violence across the city. So the neighborhood begins to experience um, poor schools, lack of community services, lack of um, city services, and then rising crime. And at that, and just at that moment when that when the when this neighborhood is really kind of experiencing a cascade of crisis, um, crack cocaine also arrives at the same time. Um, so. What crack cocaine does is it provides economic opportunities to um, the youth in the city, and it also provides an escape route for people who are starting to feel like, you know, there's no hope because they're losing their jobs, um, their housing is not being taken care of as as it was before, the neighborhood is not being taken care of as it was before, and crack cocaine just arrives at this time where it is just kind of a catalyst that to this overall violence of disinvestment that we're seeing. Now, you talk about many African-American males, but there was one case of a woman when she returned from prison and she talked about her neighborhood. Can you tell us about Nicolette? Yes, yes. So during the the 1980s in Washington, D.C., between like... 1985 and 1995, Washington, D.C. had a very high murder rate. Um, and there was just pervasive violence in the city. I mean, we we hear it today, you know, um, there's school shootings occasionally and people talk about losing, um, you know, the devastation, you know, when um, parents lose children and when, um, and when children lose their friends. But in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s and 90s, it was unfortunately extremely common. Um, so people like Nicolette, who grew up in a, in a low-income neighborhood, she didn't grow up in a housing project herself, but near one. The neighborhood that she grew up in, there was just a tremendous amount of violence. So she kind of talks about how violence just became normalized. Like she, um, she sort of says, you know, it's kind of like my, it became like my left arm. Like I didn't even, you know, I was going to funerals on a regular basis and I didn't really think about it. You know, she, she kind of makes this comment, uh, which a lot of people said, you know, as a teenager, so 15, 16 years old, um, young men, young boys and girls are, are getting dressed up to go to funerals on a regular basis and not the funeral of their great aunt or their grandmother, but really the funeral of their classmates. Um, so that's that, the, the extent to which young people were exposed to um, gun violence and the loss of life of, of their friends, um, that definitely affected both um, boys and girls growing up in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, you talk about public policy, the cutting of public housing by 76 percent, school lunches, food stamps. How did this impact the residents? Yeah, so I, the other thing interesting about public housing, so we talked about Berry Farm for a little bit and how um, it, it really was a travesty that um, the Black homeowners that live in Berry Farms, that had their homes taken. But the public housing built in Berry Farms was actually very nice at first. It's um, Berry Farms was built as this series of kind of garden apartments, and some of them were as large as five bedrooms, They had these lawns in between, these crisscrossing lanes, kind of encouraging foot tracking, encouraging community building. And in in 1959, there was an article in the the Washington Post talking about how beautiful the gardens were at Berry Farms. People were really taking care of them and how um, it was the pride of public housing in the nation and how um, they wish that all public housing could be this wonderful. So Berry Farms, when it was first built, it was built for 
working families. It was built as a segregated housing facility, so specifically for Black families. But it was built for working families, and it was it, it really um, having access to free housing or low or low cost housing really did help a lot of um, Black families kind of make it, you know, make it through the the hard economic times. However, um, in the 1970s, um, you know, and particularly under the Nixon administration, the federal government decided that they no longer wanted to invest in public housing. Um, they weren't going to just destroy all the public housing that existed because they had, you know, had really recently been built. Public housing really started in the late 1930s, so it hadn't really been around that long and it had popped up all over the country. But they decided, you know, we're not really going to maintain capital investments in public housing. We're not going to keep building new public housing. We're not going to really repair the public housing that's out there. What we're going to do is we're going to try and make public housing kind of self-sustaining. So now public housing pretty much had to rely on the rent that it received from residents um, for all maintenance purposes. So it's so the government kind of gave gave this housing to people, but didn't um, didn't continue to invest in it. So Berry Farms over time uh, just the the maintenance and the upkeep really just fell completely fell off. So now you know when a door fo- gets broken, you know the resident tries to call maintenance to come fix it, and then you know they they take months to come because they have a huge backlog. Um, when there's like a hole in the screen door that, that that's not getting fixed, when the oven is broken, when the heating is broken, when the pipes leak, it, it just becomes very difficult for um, maintenance to keep up because maintenance has been completely defunded. There's a disinvestment in the maintenance aspect of it. So over time, that just leads to the housing, you know, getting into a pretty bad state. Um, There's rodents that come in, you know, pest control isn't coming around to take care of that either. And, and public housing, and then in addition to all of that, um, public housing becomes restricted to only the very poorest people, because when it was first built, it was open for working people and and the income limits were a little bit higher. So it had a little bit more of a mixed income um, category, but as the income limits were reduced, so now you really have people that are, you know, very, very poor, um, almost no resources. So they don't really have the resources to take care of it themselves. So public housing, um, as most people who've studied the 1980s know, becomes these sites of concentrated poverty and that itself exacerbates the problem but but it's not just the fact that the people that live there are poor it's really the disinvestment in the neighborhood the fact that the schools um, are no longer providing good education Um, the streets are not being cleaned the public housing is not being maintained and people are really starting to feel kind of abandoned um, by the state and people kind of feel like it's you know it's every person for themselves out there and um there's a lot of desperation, a lot of unemployment, and all of this kind of mixes together to create um, higher levels of crime and violence. And that kind of just adds on. And you really have this public housing does start to enter um, into a pretty significant state of crisis um, by the 1980s. You talk about the lady's uh, house that was bombed. Tell us about what happened there. She basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that was in the east, in the east side, in uh, in capital dwellings. Yeah. So, um, so as these houses, uh, so as public housing is kind of um, becoming disinvested, and as and by the mid nineteen eighties, 
youth unemployment in DC, particularly for black youth, is, is quite high, very high rates of youth unemployment. It's very difficult for young black men to get jobs. So many of them turn to um, the illegal drug market to, to make ends meet. And yeah, so, the, so there was a case where there was a resident who tried to, you know, fight back against the, you know, tried to stop the drug dealing in her neighborhood, trying to get the drug dealing out of her neighborhood. Um, and in retaliation, one of the local drug dealers um, bombed her home. So that kind of sending a message to uh, the community that the drug business is here to stay and the community members um, have very limited resources in terms of responding to it on their own. You talked about children becoming orphaned because one parent or both parents uh, were on drugs. Give us some examples of that. Yeah, so during this um, during this time, what, what you would often see is um, many of the men, many of the fathers of um, the, the men that I interviewed who had been incarcerated, not all of them, but many of their fathers had also been incarcerated. So they're kind of, there's this intergenerational cycle of incarceration. So so now they're being raised by, um, you know, by their single mother and their single mother is struggling. And in some cases, their mother began to use drugs. And then sometimes she also would get arrested um, and they would become practically orphaned. But most of the time they wouldn't necessarily, you know, be orphaned, like living on the streets. They would often go then go back to their grandparents' house and their grandparents would usually welcome them um, with open arms. But at this point, their grandparents are getting old and getting older and um, and also dealing with multiple crises going on. Right. So they're having trouble, um, you know, making sure that the that the children are getting everything they need, making sure they're getting the emotional and financial support that they need, you know, with the multiple grandchildren, with the children in prison. Um, so we're seeing like um, the grandparents are raising the children and that's not necessarily, that that sometimes works out, but sometimes it becomes overwhelming um, for some of the grandparents to deal with um, both trying to manage the fallout with their own children and then also trying to manage uh, the grandchildren. In chapter five, you say it, Chocolate City No More, Gentrification Through White Reclamation. Uh, what one black neighborhood in the past was black and now it's white. Tell us about the Hanover Place. Okay. Uh, well, Hanover Place, Hanover Place was built as uh, that that neighborhood was actually built as a majority black neighborhood, and it remained majority black neighborhood um, throughout most of the twentieth century. And it was it was just south of another neighborhood called um, Bloomingdale and Eckington. And, and and so that neighborhood, um, what happened is Hanover Place um, was is, is these little small houses. And during the and it's a one way street. So during the 1980s, it became a, 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 a drug selling strip. So people would, would sell drugs on that strip. And then it was kind of just the houses on it. People I don't know if people left the houses, but it became abandoned. And and the government kind of declared that like a a blighted zone and um, and it became very heavily policed. And it just kind of got to this point where um, the houses were assessed, you know, very low at like $25,000 per house in the, in the late 1980s. And it was kind of a, this both abandoned and over-policed zone. And then many of the men that lived on that street had been incarcerated and people were leaving, were leaving the homes because the landlords weren't taking, the landlords weren't taking care of them anymore. 
So all that conspired to create a situation where this street with this row of brick homes became very, very inexpensive. Um, and that created an opportunity for investors to um, purchase the homes, purchase the land, purchase the homes on those neighborhoods and reinvest in those properties, fix them up, and then um, and then wait for um, other private investors to come along. And then, and then once that happened, to begin to resell the properties. So near Hanover Place, um, so it, you know the properties, the, the investors had to hold on to those properties for a little bit in order for the neighborhood to turn. Um, but over time, it be, that neighborhood began to see significant amounts of private investment in ways that it really hadn't seen for decades. And then slowly, the properties on that street uh, increase in value, and today are worth you know a million dollars. So did you see this pattern over and over again where the places were once black and now they're white and thriving? Yeah, over and over again. And I think the the big difference is that it happens differently in different neighborhoods, but um, the process is, is, is a little bit different in each neighborhood. Um, but yes, over and over again, you see you see neighborhoods that um, that were majority black for decades. And when they were majority black, they experienced disinvestment. And um, when white people begin to move in, they begin to see reinvestment. It's, and, and the kind of the, the timing is a little bit different each place, but we definitely see a pattern. And one thing that, to kind of reflect on here is um, you have a neighborhood like Petworth, which was, it was a neighborhood that was built for white middle-class residents in the 1930s and 40s. And then um, when black people began to move in in the 1950s, we had white flight. White people left um, in, in droves. They really left very quickly when black people moved in. And then, like I said before, the neighborhood experienced disinvestment over time. Um, so that whole time period between like 1970 and 2000, when Petworth was um, almost all black, like it got to be like 95% black. It was um, working to middle class. It was a primarily homeowner, homeowning community. Um, and parts of it were pretty upper middle class. But even though you have these large, you know, five bedroom brick homes and um, you have doctors living there and dentists and lawyers and police officers and teachers, there was very little private investment in that neighborhood. Um, it's actually on the corner from where my parents lived. There was a uh, a dry cleaners when I was growing up, and that dry cleaners today is a, is a nice little tavern. Um, and you know, the tavern is called Moreland's Tavern, and you know it, it is nice. So, but when I go there, I think you know, when I was growing up in the '80s and '90s, the people that lived on my block they could afford to come here. You know, it's like a, it's a tavern, maybe a glass of wine costs you $8, right? I mean, obviously it would have been cheaper in the 1980s, but we just didn't have um, in that majority black neighborhood, almost any private investment um, or that kind of investment, you know, like the coffee shops and the yoga studios and the, and the cafes and the little sit down restaurants. Um, we had some private investment. You had laundromats, you had the dry cleaners, liquor stores. Um, there was an arcade, 7-Eleven, lots of funeral homes, but there weren't really these kind of places you could just go sit down and have a glass of wine or, or really, there really wasn't, there really were 
pretty much no sit down restaurants in the whole whole area. So this is a huge area goes on for like two or three miles in Washington, D.C., where you have you had at the time a lot of upper income um, African-American families and just no sit down restaurants. I think the best sit down restaurant we had was like a Pizza Hut or a Shakey's. I think it might have been at the time, but you could sit in there and have pizza, but it wasn't like a a nice upscale restaurant. So you don't see that. You didn't see that private investment in the 1980s and 90s when the neighborhood was over 90 percent black. But beginning in the 21st century, when white people began to move into the neighborhood, um, all of a sudden there's a, a cider bar and a pizzeria and a sushi restaurant and there's this tavern, um, wine bars, there's a cheese shop, ice cream parlor, uh, all these things that um, that weren't there when the neighborhood was majority black. Now, you talk about a lady, Miss Ola Dixon. Tell mm-hmm. us about her housing situation and what happened. Yeah, so she's one of the people that lived in um, in Navy Yard when it was... Um, when the government decided that they were going to demolish Navy Yard. So Navy Yard had been this integrated neighborhood in the 1930s and 40s, and then it was demolished. They built public housing in its place in the 1940s and 1950s. And uh, and that neighborhood slowly became disinvested, very similar to Berry Farms. So by the, by the 1990s, the public housing project that she lived in um, had a lot of you know maintenance issues, deferred maintenance issues that really hadn't been taken care of. And the government really wanted to um, demolish that public housing project so that it could build um, new housing in its place. And Ms. Dixon really didn't, you know, want to leave the neighborhood because um, she was on a fixed, a very low fixed income. Um, but she was able to survive in that community because she lived, um, she lived in that community for for thirty years. So she knew her neighbors, and and her neighbors knew her. And, and if one of the, you know young man from the neighborhood was going to the grocery store and there was no grocery store nearby, but if they were going, they would say, Hey, you know, I'm going to the grocery store. Do you want me to pick you up something? Um, they check on her every so often, make sure she was okay. Make sure she wasn't um, getting depressed because her, her son had actually been incarcerated. So she was living alone. So she felt like she had a community. She would have, um, when she was a little short on money, she would fry up some chicken or fry up some fish and, and, and sell it, you know, in her backyard informally just to make a little, a little extra money to make ends meet. So she was able to do all of this, because even though she was living in public housing that was in disrepair, she did have a community and she, and she didn't want to lose that community. Um, but, you know, the government first gave everyone, you know, options to leave. And finally they were like, okay, we're going to demolish the house and you have to go somewhere else. And so they relocated her um, actually not too far away, um, about a mile away from where she lived. But even though it was a mile away, her whole community had just been dispersed. So she no longer had, that community that she had when she lived in Navy Yard. Um, and, you know, she's at this point in her 60s, I believe, and, and it wasn't as it wasn't that easy for her to make new friends. And she moved over there, but not not too long after she was relocated. Um, she was found, um, she had passed away alone in her apartment. Um, and a lot of people think that, you know, if she had had a community around either, first of all, she might have been able to... Um, be saved, but she certainly wouldn't have been left um, for several days, you know, not found after she deceased in her apartment. What is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? One of the reasons I wrote, I titled the book Before Gentrification is because 
a lot of times when people think about gentrification, they imagine that, um, you know, there's just these dilapidated neighborhoods and there was just a lot of violence and crime. There was nothing, there was nothing of value in those neighborhoods. Um, and gentrification only just increases the value, makes the neighborhood a nice place. And, um, and when you talk to people and people that have recently moved to DC, you know, one, one time I was um, having a, a drink at a restaurant close to where I work and I asked the waiter, I was like, oh, um, how long have you been here, you know, on, on 14th Street? And he was like, oh, oh, we were one of the first, you know, we've been here for eight years. And I was just thinking like, wow, he he has no idea, you know, of, of the rich culture and community that was here, you know, <laughs> in the 1990s. And he's just, it's just the very kind of colonization narrative. Like there was nothing here and we came and we built this nice place that's now here. I'm like, no, there were there were things here, maybe you uh, and your friends would never come over here in the 1990s, but there certainly was a lot going on there. And there were people here and there was community here. So I want to share. Um, so I, what I want people to take away is that there was a lot going on before gentrification. Some of it is very devastating. You know, as we talked about, there's the violence and the drugs and the drug selling and the incarceration that all was going on. But the other thing that was going on is that there was a lot of joy. There was live music. There was community there were people getting together, you know, having a good time, um, you know, in the in the midst of, of a lot of tragedy and suffering. So I think, um, it was, so I want what I want people to take away from the book is that um, there was a lot going on before gentrification, and there's a lot about Washington D.C. that deserves to be preserved. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? Yes, of course. Um, what I'm working on is actually kind of really taking a deep dive into um, the real estate transactions that went, that happened in Washington, DC in the 1940s and fifties, because um, it's just fascinating to me that between 1954 and 1960, so many white homeowners sold their homes. So I'm really trying to dig in and understand exactly what happened. I think we have the, um, the broad narrative, you know, that these real estate agents came in and convinced everyone to sell their homes and they all sold their homes and move out to the suburbs. But I think that narrative is just a little bit simplistic and that there was actually um, a lot more going on during that time. So I'm taking a very close look at, um, at block, what we call blockbusting in, um, in Petworth in order to understand how that racial transition really happened. Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Deirdre. It was a pleasure chatting with you.